So a guy goes to a psychoanalyst. He goes to a psychoanalyst, his, his therapist, and he goes in and he says, you know, I've been having this problem. I've been, I, I can't see myself as anything other than seed. I can't get myself away from this idea that I'm just chicken feed. I'm seed. And, and he said, and I just feel terrible. I feel so small. I feel just so shrunken and, and unimportant and insignificant. And I'm afraid at every moment because I'm seed. And so this, the psychoanalyst realizes this is a pretty unusual case. And he works with the guy for months and months. And after some time, the guy has finally decided, he, you know, he's finally come around to recognizing, no, he's a human being, you know, and he's not seed, bird seed, in fact. And so he's, he's released. And, and he goes home and and the psychoanalyst hadn't seen him for months. And then suddenly the guy shows back up at his office door, banging on the door. When the psychoanalyst opens up the door, there's the same guy, just sweating and panicked and, 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 and uh, breathing fast. And, and, and he looks at the guy and he says, what's the matter? And the guy says, I, 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 I'm back again. And he said, but I thought you got over being a seed. And he said, yes, I did, I did. But my neighbor, I got a new neighbor, and he has a bunch of chickens. Yes, but you're not seed. He says, I know that, but do the chickens know that? <laughs> so we have a problem in our culture today. We have this idea that we deal with problems by kind of hiding from them. And we do that in a number of ways. We do that by avoiding them by work. We do that by avoiding them with uh, substance. We avoid them in, with church. Some people find that they kind of hide in church. Some people even find that they kind of create God in their own image in a way in which they also are able to face their fears. Now, this idea came to me. Uh, I was studying uh, this guy named Slavok Zizak, Zizak, and you're not going to know how to say that or pronounce that or, or spell it, so I'm going to include it in the link. But he's a Lithuanian philosopher of religion as well as a social psychologist and a professor at New York University and a number of universities across the U.S. He's very well known among those folks who have been in the process of deconstruction because he is one of those folks who's begun to kind of question the very foundations of how we address issues in our life. For example, tolerance. We think of tolerance as something that we learn how to accept something. But in fact, if you really think about tolerance, it's just intolerance in hiding. Do you see how that can be the case? Because our intolerance is what got us to this place. And so if we just say, all right, we'll learn how to tolerate things, we're really not accepting. We're trying to be patient with what we've already decided and continued to decide we're not comfortable with something. It's just intolerance in hiding. And Zizek would say, what you have to do is you've got that. The reason why the chicken is still scary is because while you may realize that you're not a seed, you really haven't dealt with what the real fear is. You're afraid of stuff in life anyway. Chickens are going to show up all over the place until you learn how not to be afraid of things. Now, the way in which the New Testament says that, the way in which Paul addresses that, is he says, love is how you address fear. Love is always how you address fear. And by love, we mean how you open vulnerability to wherever you are in that moment, in the mystery, in the uncertainty, and you stay present with it, with curiosity, and with patience, and without making judgment, which is really hard to do, because our default is always judgment. Our default is always fear. Our default is always chickens, <laughs> right? And then we fall back into the pattern of thinking what we are in relation to that. 
Now, if you imagine yourself, this text is a great text. It's one of my favorite texts in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible, actually, where Paul is at the, at the Arapagus, but he's actually in, it's actually the Parthenon. It's down below the Parthenon. It's in a special area where the philosophers gather, and they're discussing different ideas. And it's really interesting because they have different ideas. There are Stoics, there are Epicureans, there are different philosophers, different schools of philosophy that are always gathered in this space, and they're always talking about their ideas. They're not agreeing, they're always talking about ideas. They're not even tolerating, they're curious about ideas. And so Paul knows about this place, and so the disciples have gone elsewhere in the area, and he's kind of hanging around waiting for them to come back by before they move to the next place where they're going on their mission. And he decides to kind of wander over to this area and to, and, and to sort of look at things with them and then engage them in conversation. And being a rhetorician, rhetorician <laughs> he is, he's very well versed not only in their thinking and their philosophy, but in language that can speak to them, which is why you always hear Paul saying to the Greeks, I'm Greeks, to the Romans, I can be Romans, to the Jews, I'll be Jews. Because he listens first and finds his way to relate to how they understand things. And so he's looking at all these different gods. There might be Ares, there might be Apollo. These different statues of gods represent what? Think about it. What do they represent? They represent our fears. They represent our, our anxiety. They represent our longings. The goddess of love. The goddess of craft and work. The god of war the god of, of, of harvest. All these different gods represent some anxiety, some need that's not met. And so we have gods to do that. Now, now you could do this. You can, we can be at the wine house. It happens at the wine house on Tuesday night. For those of you who come to the wine house, we sit around and we're talking about our different gods. I mean, we don't think about it, but we're talking about our pet. We're talking about our pet peeves. <laughs> we're talking about our jobs and our anxieties. We're talking about our vacations. All of these things represent identities. They represent things that connect us to something we want to be or something we see ourselves as or something we want to be in terms of inclusion with the group we're in. Think about it. We've been doing this all of our lives. Wanting to be included, doing what we need to do to, to, to be included or to be something distinctive from being included. Now, you may not think about these as, as gods, but they are definitely a part of us because they mean something deeply inside us. What Paul Tillich might call the ultimate concern. They, they have ultimate concern for us. So Paul sees all this. He sees this all going on. He sees the Stoics talking about how to live their life more disciplined so that they can accomplish more and how to learn to let go of their fears of death so that they can live more in the present. He's, he's looking at all of these different philosophers and then he notices this statue that's got a, a, a phrase underneath it that says, to the unknown God. And he sees that as an opportunity and basically says what you all are seeing as the different things that, you know, the, uh, the chickens, as you, as you see these different things you attach to, these different gods, I see that you have a curiosity about this thing. Have you ever wondered what connects all of it together? And so he says, our God is the God of the very ground of our being, the one in whom we all move and live and have our being, which is a phrase we use a lot in here. It's a phrase that that theologian Paul Tillich picked up on as he began to understand how our existential dilemmas are really about ultimate reality. They all basically revolve back to wanting to be included and our fear of mortality 
and then our need to have purpose and meaning. And all those things boil down to this uncertainty, this ultimate concern. And Paul says, this is the one in whom we move and live and have all of our being and connects all of us together. And of course, what's interesting that you don't find in a lot of our settings is that what do they say? Well, tell us more. Because they, they come with this curiosity. Now, you wouldn't see that today, right? Right? If someone's going to be in church, come in here, and you're visiting for the first time in 11-11, and I've heard this, and when, you, when they leave, I get feedback from somebody else, or someone tells me just right to my face and says, you didn't talk about Jesus at all. You only said Jesus' name once or twice. That's just not enough. And then, of course, Brad, you know, he came up here once, and he said, no, no, in 11-11, we have just enough Jesus. That became our slogan, right? <laughs> but the thing that people can't see sometimes is what they can't hear past. Because they come with their God. I know you don't think of that. They come with their idol. They come with their fixed understanding. They come with their, their impression of themselves, the stories they've carried their lives, the stories that they've identified themselves with. And then they look for a place that, that either accepts it or that it feels comfortable in. And Paul goes into this space where there's all sorts of ideas and says, here's another one. And some of them actually are impressed by it. Some of them are actually influenced by it. And others of them probably just go back to their Epicurean ideas or their Stoic ideas or whatever. They're Roman gods. But this idea of what grounds us, I think, is, is the most challenging part of, of, of finding what it means to be connected to one another. The challenge for us is, how do we see that as God? Or, even better, do we even need the word God, or is that too scary? Is that too anxious? Anne Lamont, when she was asked, well, Anne Lamont was asked, what do you think God is? And her simple answer was, not me. So I want to bring up this image here just to kind of remind us. We got this coming up. Oh, I got to look over here. So this is a quote from... Um, Thomas Merton, and I'm just looking down here now for that quote, and I don't see it. And now I can't see it on the board because I can't see the board. <laughs> so we have another issue. Go to the next image. Well, I will say, I will summarize what Paul Taylor's image was about. How often do we go into a space and we see others not for who they are, but for who we think they should be or for who we are? Again, because we bring our, I'll say it, our idol, our God to the table, and we expect God to match that, whatever we're looking at. So we often are not seeing people genuinely, we are seeing our anxiety, which is an interesting problem when it comes to understanding what people are going through. Right now, my own family's dealing with, I have a son who's a teacher at, at, a, at a high school um, in the area, so actually it's a multi-grade high school, elementary to high school, and, and the issue of trans individuals came up, of a trans student who wanted to be in an arts program. And it became a, a huge issue where the school, of course, was an art school, so it's inclusive and it's accepting, and even a lot of the, a lot of the uh, faculty are, are queer. They, they're, they're lesbian, they're gay. But this student was suddenly an issue because they were different or maybe even unsure. And so rather than trying to understand, everyone saw from their own perspective, God is me, and you don't match. You don't fit. We're not asking for tolerance there because, you see, tolerance doesn't do anything but hide our sense of intolerance. What we're asking for 
is openness and curiosity and love. And then to see where that goes first. Every time we enter from the perspective of it's just chickens, all we're going to see is we're bird seed, and we don't want to deal with it. Until we can realize that it's our fear that's governing everything, we can't get past this issue. So point number one is God is not me. Let's see if we got the next one up here. Do we have this next slide up here? Yeah, I'll go back one, go back one, The Idolatry of God. This is a great book by Peter Rollins, and I guarantee if you read it, it will challenge you. It will challenge some of your thinking. But this is this idea that we find ourselves placing God in the same box that we place everything else in terms of our ultimate concern, which are our anxiety and our, our, uh, our fear of mortality and our fear of not being included or not belonging. And so we have this idolatry that seems like it's church. But what happens to church or what happens to God in that perspective is that it easily becomes weaponized. When fear is driving my relationship to you, then whatever I associate with is going to be weaponized to deal with you. Whether that's God, whether that's Christianity, whether that's the church, whether that's my uh, identity, it becomes weaponized. Why? Because I'm afraid. I don't get it. I don't understand. So lesson one is to try to get to that place where we recognize that God is not me. When it comes to knowing who or what God is, we have to first deal with our own or unknown fears. We have to learn how to love in the space of fear. Now, how do you do that? When you're really afraid, how do you love? Because you're afraid. It's unknown. You're, you're unfamiliar with it. It seems wrong. I know it's wrong. You go automatically to the statue, the fixed thing that you've always grown up with or that you've always understood what God is. How long did it take you to let go of the idea, or I'm sorry, if you haven't let go, I'm, I shouldn't assume that, but how long has it taken many of you to let go of the image that God is a white guy in the sky? Now, maybe not so much in here because we've been a place of kind of deconstruction and openness and questioning for a long time, but that's clearly still a significant problem. Even when you say, okay, come on, I know God's not a big white guy in the sky, I'm just going to act like he is. I'm just going to behave as if he's still that kind of thing. He still thinks like me. He still hates the people I hate. Still wants what I want, right? It's still the same thing. It's hard to let go of that idea because it feels like, as a person told me recently, a good friend told me recently, he says, you know what? I don't believe any of that anymore. I'm not sure what I believe in. Any of you in that place? And I looked at her and I said, yeah, you are. You really are. It's just you feel like you have to have something that's concrete, like the statue, like the idol, like the thing you had for so long that you clung to. You feel like you have to have that. And so you feel like you don't know what you believe in because you don't believe in that. But in truth, you know what you believe in. You know what's of ultimate concern to you. You know what's ultimately important in our world. And then if you're asking, well, is that God then? Well, you know, I'm going to be the last person to be up here and tell you exactly what God is. Because I think that's a, I think that's a little facetious to go there. But I think that's on the path. I deeply believe that's on the path. So point number two is we have to learn how to love through our fears in order to experience 
the depth and the connection of the ground of our being shared with one another, that we share even with those who, who scare us, even with those who, with whom we disagree. That same ground of being is what we all move and have our being in. So today is um, 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 George Lucas's birthday, right? Did y'all know that? It's George Lucas's birthday. Happy birthday, George Lucas. Born in 1944. You know what he's famous for, right? Star Wars, right, right, Star Wars. The number eight is coming out later this summer, I think, or maybe towards December. The, the most successful franchise ever. And what did he capitalize on? He capitalized on the hero's journey, right? He capitalized on this idea of the hero trying to find their own personal meaning in life and what it is they're supposed to be about, what their destiny is. But in the midst of that, it's the, it's the, it's the conflict between good and evil, the, the dark force and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the positive force, or darkness and the, and the I guess, the force. Is, there, is it two? There's dark force and the regular force. That's not right. I'm not getting that right. Somebody tell me what I'm trying to say here. The dark side, thank you, yes. There's the dark, see how hard that is to try to conceive of that? It's the dark side and then the force. So they, but in reality, if you think about it, one, one of the commentaries who, who was reviewing the most recent uh, movie coming out said that really this is probably the single most unifying religious understanding that all of us have, regardless of our religious orientation, is this idea of good force versus the dark side goodness versus evil. It seems to be the one thing that we can't get out of, that we can all identify with. But in truth, that line is very thin, right? That line is very, very thin. The moment we start thinking about weapons and our disapproval of weapons on the street because of the murder and the innocence, then we start thinking about how much death occurs because of our willingness to execute people. State-sanctioned kind of murder, right? No, we think that's justice. You know, the ease with which we might kill something or someone when it's legal. It's a fine line. Oh, wait, wait. How about climate change and the policies that we have or that we advocate for but are causing drought and climate issues around the world that are forcing people into starvation? I mean... Killing is a fine line. Murder is a fine line. Death and who causes it and what causes it is a fine line. And for us to think that it's simply black and white is, again, to just look for chickens and go hide places. The place where God is is right there in the midst of the uncertainty. That's the messiness that invites us to participate in love and compassion and attentiveness. We have to find our way to learn how to love in the space of fear. A friend of mine who's a Catholic priest is also a Zen student, and he told me this story about something that happened. I want to suggest it to you as just a practice that you might engage in before I mention point number three. He said that he, was, he, was in, he, runs, he assists at a, at a Zendo, which is basically the little Zen meditation center, and it's over in Dallas. He says he was going to sort of set it up and get it ready for a meditation session, or session, or, or season, they call it. And he was going to be there just to kind of facilitate. He got there, he lit the candles. It was a cold evening. This happened, I guess, last winter. And, and he said that after he sat there for a little while, nobody showed up that night. So he just stood, he sat there like he would anyway. 
and he started to focus on his breath. But instead, what he found himself focusing on was the candlelight. He was just staring at the candle. And as he looked at the flicker of the candle, he started to notice it kind of moved in this rhythmic kind of pattern. And as it flickered, he noticed the wax melting down the side of the candle. And then he noticed the little stream of smoke that was first kind of gray and then black and then dissipated and disappeared. And he looked at all of that and began to think to himself, wait a minute, that the, the candle, the flame, the smoke, is it the smoke and the flame or is it the smoke is the flame, is the candle, is the wax? And then he began to think, am I my cells that are randomly forming into something that I call my body and creates this shape that I presume is what I am? Or is it something else? Am I the cells? Are the cells me? He began to just look at everything and see the interconnectedness of it, which is a very Zen-like idea. It's also a very Pauline idea in terms of the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And he felt this sense of beauty and delight just in seeing that insight that he had never thought of before. So he went and he told his teacher about it uh, later on, his, his mentor, his sensei. He told her about it and he said, so is this what the meaning of the emptiness of our inferred being is? Which is a very weird Zen term, the idea that we only find our greatest delight when we learn to let go of all, everything, to let things be and be present in moments. We find the ground of our being. And she looked at him and she said, that's exactly it. It's emptiness. He said, it's that simple? That's all it is? And she said, well, I didn't say, I said it might be kind of hard to get there, but I didn't say it wouldn't be simple. That's really what we're after, I think is this ability to sit down with something that seems so complicated, so contrary to us, so counterintuitive to us, so scary at times to us, and to be present enough to it that we begin to see the connections, we begin to see something deeper that's freeing, and we begin to find this sense of freedom in the midst of what's difficult. We begin to find connections where we didn't think they were. We begin to find hope where we didn't think it was because we didn't approach it as a chicken. <laughs> We approached it as a mystery, and mysteries always have possibilities. So I want to show this last slide, or the second to last slide. I believe this is the quote. Is this not the quote that says, the church is not the place? Do we have that quote? That's it. Okay, thank you. The church is not the place for our most intransigent neuroses to find confirmation in order to be weaponized. Okay, I'm going to say that again because that's what we oftentimes think about as the church. The church is not a place for our most intransigent neuroses to find confirmation in order to be weaponized, but it's the place where we challenge our fears and our anxieties in a space and practice of love, attentiveness, inclusion, not tolerance, but acceptance in our shared existence of humility, justice, and delight. Imagine if the church was simply a place where we allowed people to share their fears and their differences and where we listen enough to look for one another to find the connection. Imagine what that would feel like. When my mother first dealt with being divorced, she had to deal with the first statue falling over. Her family wasn't what it was supposed to be. When she 
couldn't get the job that could give her the house that she had when she was living in a certain part of our town and had to settle for a smaller place in a lesser part of town because her father helped her out at that point, another one of those statues toppled. You see where I'm going? When her kids struggled to find themselves in the midst of this brokenness and family and the former abuse and all of that, the tightness of family and her sense of who she was or had to be as the perfect mother, that was another statue that fell. My mother, as she made her way through the last, well, I'd say the middle 20 years of her life, was living with statues and gods all around her falling because everything she expected to happen wasn't happening. But then she got into alcoholism and then more statues fell until finally there was nothing there and she found herself at an AA meeting. And this is what she told me after her second meeting, because I was in college and I came back to visit. My mother said, you know what I found when I went to that meeting? There was no more pretense. There were no more lies. It was just vulnerability and honesty. It didn't matter who they were or who I was or our backgrounds because we were all the same in this shared reality. And suddenly there was this whole new thing that didn't have a statue at all. It was just humility and mercy, and that began the path towards acceptance and transformation. So point number three, then, is, yeah, God is not me. God is we. And the more we see the world, oh, I should have asked you, Ben, to come on up here. The more we see the world from the perspective of God is we, the more we become open to the fact that we are part of something much greater than ourselves that is sustaining us as well. Amen.